Well, we're coming down to the wire in our uh, series on Romans 8. We're in verses 28 through 30 this morning in this series called More Than Conquerors. And I think that that line, which is taken from the last section, the last paragraph of this amazing chapter that Paul wrote in, in Romans 8, that that line, more than conquerors, is a, a line that applies to really the entire chapter and, and maybe the entire book of, of Romans. Chapter 8 especially is filled with triumph. And Paul is essentially saying, you know, we're talking about something more than earthly triumph. We're talking about something more than being conquerors, like the Romans are conquerors. Because Paul also acknowledges, as we've seen, not just the triumph in Christ, but the fact that we also suffer in Christ. We also groan along with the rest of creation as we wait, as Paul says, for the redemption of our bodies. And life in Christ just isn't about trumpets. It isn't just about announcing victory, but living in hope in the face of all of the things that could just as easily invite us to despair. And today in verses 28 through 30, there's kind of a transition between this discussion of groaning and suffering that he has in the previous verses. And we move from that discussion of pain and suffering to those final verses describing the victory that has been won in Jesus Christ, the love of God from which nothing can separate us. So today we're in verses 28 through 30. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Lord, bring us by your spirit into that place of assurance, assurance of your goodness and of your sovereignty and of your steadfast love and your choice to draw us to yourself in Jesus. Help us to rest in that place and understand what is ultimately good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God. It's one of those greatest hits texts, if you will. One of those great quotable lines from the Bible. One of those lines that people love to put on bookmarks and bumper stickers. A pithy, short, obvious description of what is true for the believer. It's a greatest hits text, and so therefore it's often the kind of thing that we see embroidered on a cross-stitch sampler or those sorts of things, but we never see what comes before it or necessarily what comes after it. And as my theology professor used to say, true, true, but by itself, not entirely adequate. True, God 
does work all things together for good for those who love God. But when we lift that line out of context and we make it to stand alone, it becomes a kind of truism that starts to not hold up very well. A truism that doesn't hold up to scrutiny and may do the exact opposite of what users of this text have in mind when they print it on those bookmarks and bumper stickers, that it may not bring comfort, but actually might horrify us. It leads to another truism that people often use that I hear quite often, the one that I'm not sure is in the Bible, but one that is drawn from texts like this, when someone will say to you, God is in control. Again, I will say true, but by itself, not entirely adequate. Because I can't imagine that caption underneath a 767 flying into the World Trade Center. That doesn't assure me in any way. What that does is make me not want to pray to this God. But when we restore this passage to its context, I think we begin to understand the nuances and the mystery of providence. When we restore it to context, something different comes into view, something more complex, something a little more nuanced perhaps, something maybe mysterious, but something that comforts and assures us of the steadfast, loving presence of God. What comes into view is not the God who is the marionette master, who has written a grand story and now for his own enjoyment is playing it out and pulling every string. What comes into view is not the architect who has planned out every detail on the blueprint and is now watching it being built. What comes into view is not the general hovering over the strategy table that fills a room, moving the pieces around and giving orders about every movement in the battle. But what comes into view is a God with a grand and loving purpose to reconcile all things to himself, the ultimate will of God. And Paul says it elsewhere, what comes into view essentially is the summing up of all things in Jesus Christ, as he says in Ephesians. What comes into view is this one who is before all things, this one in whom all things cohere, as he says in Colossians. Essentially what Paul is saying here is those who love God are those who are loved by God who are the recipients of the blessing of his purpose for all of creation. The relationship for which he created us, the, the ministry, the reality of being conformed, as he says here, to the image of his son, and to so follow this firstborn, Jesus, into the very heart of God, and to be a part of this massive family of God. Paul strings together four words here, and we could do a couple of things. We could 
take each of those four words and the temptation is to spend about five minutes on each one and and describe it and and give it theological meaning and what people define that word as and turn those four words into a kind of linear process and those of us like myself who are extremely organized love that sort of thing but i'm not sure that's what paul's getting at paul loves lists paul loves lists and he puts them all the way through the scriptures and remember all of his letters are dictated not written when he actually picks up the pen he says things like see with what large letters i write because he had a vision problem and so he dictated his letters and i love to imagine paul literally kind of pacing in the various places he finds himself often some of these letters are written from prison cells and just going for it as the spirit moves in him and begins to list things you know the fruit of the spirit the works of the flesh the you know all of these lists that that he has throughout the gifts of the spirit you know they're they're just these marvelous lists and I think what Paul is doing is being very Jewish in these lists. When you look at Hebrew poetry, Hebrew poetry is not rhyming poetry. Hebrew poetry is what's called parallelism. It's taking the same idea and unpacking it with a series of words that are, that are synonyms. And you see this all the time in the Psalms. And I think that's what Paul is doing here as well. He's describing something that all of these words add up to essentially the same thing. When he talks about all of these words, he's talking about the same big truth of reconciliation, of belonging, of relationship, predestined, called, justified, glorified brought into perfect relationship with the creator. And all of them speak to the intentionality of God to bring us into relationship with himself. They speak to that big providential reality of God's big purpose, the good that he works out. The plan of the ages is God's choice to relate to his creation, God's choice to reconcile us to relationship with God and so with one another. You know, as I have mentioned before in this series, one of the books that I'm reading, and I didn't choose to read it during Lent as some sort of Lenten discipline, but uh, at the, before Lent started, I started reading John Meacham's biography of, of Abraham Lincoln, and there was light. But it's proved to be quite a companion for this series on, on Romans 8. Meacham devotes quite a bit of space to a discussion of Abraham Lincoln's faith. And Lincoln was not an Orthodox Christian by any stretch of the imagination, but he was someone who through life began to believe more and more and more in the providence of God and God's loving plan for humanity and for creation. In his view of God's providence and God's plan and God's purpose really grew out of his own suffering. He had to make sense of it in some way. There had to be some bigger 
thing behind the deaths of his two young sons from disease. There had to be something bigger behind the destruction and the devastation of the thousands upon thousands of people who were dying in and through the Civil War. They were for him profound invitations to dwell on the character of God's providence and the invitation to look for meaning in it. And Lincoln had a, a relationship with the pastor of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church who performed the funeral of, of one of his sons there in Washington, D.C. His name was Dr. Gurley, and Dr. Gurley really somehow convinced Lincoln to believe in and trust in the steadfast, loving presence of this God who plans, but also how we cannot figure out exactly what all of the happenings of life might mean within that plan or fit in or to be justified as a part of that plan, that that had to stay in mystery. Lincoln deeply wanted to do the will of God in leading the country, but he also acknowledged constantly that if he didn't know that for sure, he wasn't ready to just accept someone else's view that it was the will of God. And so for him, and this was the thing that I found the most profound, is that the loving hand of God was cloaked in mystery, but he never let go of that sense that love was behind it all. And you see this theology work itself out in the second inaugural address. And I know this is kind of a history lecture today, but I tell you, I'm a Lincoln geek. And so uh, this is my platform right now, so I get to talk about it. Um, but um, in his second inaugural address, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C. in the Lincoln Memorial, you have that marvelous statue of Lincoln in the middle, and then on the opposite walls that face each other, you have on one wall the words of the Gettysburg Address engraved in the stone, and on the other wall the words of the Second Inaugural Address, which like the Gettysburg Address is quite short, but I think three times as long as the Gettysburg Address, four paragraphs instead of just one, <laughs> you know, four times as long. But um, just to remind you of when that speech was given, was March 4th, 1865. The Civil War ended at Appomattox on April 9th of 1865, and Lincoln was killed on April 14th of 1865. So things are coming to an end as he speaks this second inaugural address. The war is coming to an end. It appears that the Union is going to to win that war, and he speaks not a word of we won, not a word of triumph, but does more of a reflection on the question of what does this all mean and what might God be speaking to us through it. It's more of a sermon than it is a political speech or a, a plan for his second term. It's merely four paragraphs, and I want to read most of the third paragraph to you because it teaches us something 
about this view of providence. This sense of, yes, God is doing something, but we're not going to know for sure what that is, perhaps, until sometime in the future. But he says this, neither party, speaking of the North and the South, neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict should itself cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us not judge that we not be judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Lincoln takes a look at it and says, maybe this was the plan. Maybe this is what's going on, but who knows? But it is that sense that there's something bigger than himself that's at issue here. Who knows what God is doing is really the tenor of the speech. What God may have intended to give us through this experience is not clear. Perhaps it has to do with the country's drama and dance with slavery. But what can we know? And all we can know is that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What Lincoln says is what we can know is that the truth will come out. God will be God. So let us face into the devastation occupied fully by a sense of God's mercy and persistence with us. Let God be God and see where that takes us. 
On the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, an interesting dynamic takes place because the crowd is singing to him the halal of Psalm 118. They are singing to him a messianic psalm. You know, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All of these things are being said and ascribed to Jesus. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, says Luke, that are surrounding this event and kind of watching on the, the sidelines and listening to what they feel is blasphemy being sung by this crowd, tell Jesus to try and silence them. You, you know what they're saying. You know this isn't appropriate. You know that this is blasphemy. And Jesus just says that marvelous line, we could all try to quiet them, but if they were quiet, the stones would cry out. Because this is a marvelous thing that God is doing. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so creation is giving witness to this, and you cannot quiet this song. The wonderful thing about the providence of God is that it's the providence of God. And what is hidden, we will one day know. But until then, we live in mystery. And the good news is we live in mystery that is completely bathed in steadfast love from which we cannot be shaken. Let's pray. Lord, we are part of a mystery we do not understand, and we are grateful. But you have reached to us, you have called us by name, we are yours. Help us to rest in that place, even in the midst of the groans of creation, of the suffering that we endure, of the wrongs that we might suffer. Help us to rest in the truth that your mercy is new every morning, that your love is steadfast, and great is your faithfulness. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.